Hello and welcome to the commentary track for Black Boots Leather Whip, a Jess Franco production, I guess you could say. My name is Rod Barnett. And this is Robert Monell. I'm the creator, webmaster of the blog, I'm in a Jess Franco state of mind. I'm here to discuss uh, Jess Franco's 1982 neo-noir uh, black Boots and Leather Whip, along with Rod. Um, the Severn Films Blu-ray you are watching is the high-definition debut of this film. I'm going to begin by reading something I wrote about this film after first seeing it via a VHS dupe about 25 years ago. One of Jess Franco's favorite characters, Spanish private investigator El Pereira, played here by Robert Foster, also known as Antonio Mayans, that's his real Spanish name, but he was credited under this anglicized name in the film, has got an addiction and he's got it bad. It's gotten him into trouble before, but this time it threatens to be the end of him. He's got a loyal girlfriend who wants to get married, but Al has been too busy eyeing other women and with his semi-legal activities as a PI in Malaga, Spain. Now, as the film opens, Al is seen frantically packing. Uh, he's trying to get away from trouble with sex, women, money, and all the people who are after him. Then Lena, played by Lena Romay, here credited as Candy Coster, as she was in many of her 1980s Jess Franco film appearances, walks in. She's a bleach blonde, wide-eyed, and her long legs under her trench coat just can't wait to wrap themselves around their next victim, who happens to be Al. She's the spider, the black widow, and to continue the cliche, he's the fly. Now, we're only a few minutes into the film, and it's obvious this is a neo-noir, a 1980s version of a classic film noir. She wants Al to pick up some compromising photos of her stashed in a wrecked car in the local automobile graveyard. She pays him well and offers herself as a bonus upon completion. But Al doesn't bar bargain on having to kill two thugs so he can get back to his seedy apartment where Lena awaits him dressed in a see-through outfit. He also doesn't bargain for the suspicious strip club where Lena works or her manager husband, a bisexual gangster who likes to wear women's makeup and loud pink clothing. But Lena has been planning for a fatal end to their marriage, which will leave her as the major stockholder in their narcotics, gambling, and prostitution activities, which their nightclub has been a front for. Then there's the phony doctor and her friends who play S&M games with black boots and a leather whip. When they make Al strip and start beating him, he really loses it and begins shooting killing at least one person. He didn't bargain for that either. So, running from the police and the mob at this point, he drives to the end of a bayou where he makes love to Lena as screaming seagulls reel overhead, stirred up by Lena's moans of pleasure. This is all a carefully planned distraction because death was coming to the party and Al will be the guest of honor. Like Robert Mitchum in the American film noir classic Out of the Past, featuring another doomed P.I. set up by a particularly toxic femme fatale 
Ale will play the role of the fall guy right up to the end of this film. Now, it should be noted um, before we get into this that uh, the series of films Franco made about this private investigator he created, Al Pereira, began in 1962 with Conrado San Martin playing the role of Death Whistles the Blue. Conrado San Martin was an actor who also played the chief inspector who is trying to catch the awful Dr. Orloff and Franco's first horror film of that name, uh, made in 1961. Um, Eddie Constantine would uh, also play the role, this time as a Euro spy in Franco's Attack of the Robots in 1966. Then uh, Franco regular Howard Vernon would play the role in the 1972 uh, Lace Abran Lise a very sleazy French neo-noir where the detective becomes dangerously involved in a very similar plot involving strippers, hookers, transsexuals, criminal activity, and violence. Antonio Mayans took over the role in the 1980s and played the role in a series of crime films, which ended in Franco's very last films, El Pereira versus the Alligator Ladies and Revenge of the Alligator Ladies both of which were made right before the director's death in 2013. Mayans would play other private detectives in other Jess Franco films, such as Pickup Girls in 1980 and The Night of Open Sex in 1981, but with different names, such as Al Crosby and Philippe Marlboro. But they're all essentially the same character, a sort of lower middle-class guy who always gets in way over his head. Also should be noted the name El Pereira was derived by Jess Franco from the name of a Hollywood art director, very prolific art director, uh, who designed 283 Hollywood films starting in the early 40s and television shows, including Double Indemnity and Rear Window, both two very famous film noir drenched films. Now, Black Boots and Leather Whip is the blackest of Franco's series of films about this Al Pereira. It's a film noir rendered in the saturated oranges, lemons, and aquas of the glittery, trashy Costa del Sol. As embodied by Mayans it's one of the, in one of his most dead-on performances for Franco, Al is a frantic, at, char at times charming, and boyish woman hunter. Romay's Femme Fatale is all lush, slutty sexuality with an icy edge, which is barely perceptible to her business associates and totally invisible to Al. This time around, Al might be a character out of a Jim Thompson novel, and his grim fate is inevitable for a man whose thinking capacity never arises above his waist. Daniel White's urgent score is perfectly appropriate for this rush-toward-death cautionary tale, and Franco and Juan Cozar's Citron color scheme they use in the photography has never seemed quite as ironic and becomes a postmodern Costa del Sol equivalent of those liquid black nights and mean streets of classic 1940s film noirs directed by people like Robert Siodmak, Jacques Turner, and other Hollywood craftsmen. And as we'll see at the end, we wonder if Al was a victim of an Oedipal complex here. He always called the nude playmate on the poster taped to his wall, Mi Madre, 
the bitch of it all was that Lena, who was now long gone, hadn't gotten him, the mob hadn't gotten him, the cops hadn't gotten him, he got himself. Lena Romay projects a perfect mixture of sexual desire and moral ambiguity in the role of this ruthless femme fatale. It also should be noted that Jose Antonio Mayans Harras, that was his full name, uh, was born in Valencia on May 4th, 1939. He began acting in films in 1959 and played roles in films such as Nicholas Ray's 1963 King of Kings, among other international productions shot in Spain. He appeared in at least 60 Jess Franco films between 1973 and 2013, including incomplete projects and alternate versions. He also appeared in several hardcore sex films directed by Franco. He acted as a production manager on 24 Jess Franco films between 1982 and 2012. Overall, he has appeared in over 200 film projects in a 60-year career. At this point in time, his film career continues. Now, Rob, what was your first reaction seeing this film? I don't know when you first saw it. And how do you think it holds up today? Well, the first time I saw it was uh, literally only about six months ago. And uh, I had been curious about it, as I'm curious about most of the uh, Jess Franco films from the 1980s. May, well, for two reasons. One, it's a Jess Franco film. And second, because it's been incredibly difficult to find. Um, we should, all of us, really, sit here and thank Severin for going out of their way to find and release beautiful-looking prints of these movies. Uh, because i got to tell you, the first time I saw this was, of course, a print from the bootleg market, the only way you could, from some VHS put out somewhere in Europe. And hopefully, uh, beautifully subtitled, uh, better subtitles now, of course. But my first reaction to it was, my goodness, this is a gem. This is an unexpected, joyous gem. And you got to understand that I knew at the time that this was uh, this was one of twelve movies that Jess Franco made in the year he made this movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. I, I have to tell you, uh, although I am a Jess Franco fan, uh, I, with that bit of knowledge, I had dialed my expectations down a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I should not have. I was just as shocked by how, how impressive, how, imp how just truly wonderful this movie is. Uh, the same way I was utterly shocked by White Bay, uh, Bianca, uh, Bianca Blanca. It comes at a point in his career when uh, he's been, a, he's been a, a serious filmmaker... Uh, living by the skin of his teeth for for decades, uh, churning out movie after movie. He's working at an incredibly frantic pace. And what I don't see in this movie is someone who is running out of ideas or running out of enthusiasm or running out of just about any of the juice that it takes to be a filmmaker. This is, I mean, yeah, the, the, the obvious influences are there. This is a neo-noir. This is so obviously influenced by the film noirs of the past that it couldn't be. I mean, he might as well just have a, you know, have an intertitle go and now we'll have the femme fatale enter the scene. <laughs> but what he's got here is a truly amazing little movie that um, it, it's, it's not quite like what I was expecting because there, there comes a point when um, I fully expect when seeing a, a, a completely unseen Franco film from either the seventies or the eighties that what I'm about to watch may have a little bit of the dream-like quality. 
that mm-hmm. he was he was so good at, at conjuring. Uh, this is not that kind of film. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is a straight ahead neo noir crime movie with a very hard edge, uh, gunplay, double crosses, strange motivations, questionable motivations, and uh, honestly, uh, an ending that uh, really kind of still manages to slap you in the face, even though you, as a viewer, are way ahead of old Al about just what might happen to him as this story plays out. Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, that's um, That was pretty much my reaction. And, you know, the whole thing about it is it's, as you said, it's very straightforward. It takes place in the real world. Yeah. <laughs> and the real... Yeah, it doesn't have all these dreamlike effects or dreamlike scenes or or, or, or an oneric a dreamlike atmosphere. It takes place in the real world. It's this guy who's got like a life, a certain type of life, which is detailed, and he's a. It's very character driven and very narrative driven, and you can't really say that about a lot of Jess Franco's films. You know, it's like uh, some of my favorites. Some of favorite films are like Succubus or. Venus and Firms, they're they're they take place and they're like watching somebody's dream. Okay? Yeah, yeah. They're 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 not at all realistic. There's no there's very little reality in there. And in fact, it's hard to tell where fantasy ends and where reality begins if there's any reality at all. And the, the characters are are there. They're more like maybe symbols than real people. Here we're, we're dealing with real characters, real people with real problems in the real world. And uh, it's character-driven and narrative-driven, uh, much more than a lot of other Franco films that I've seen. And uh, and yes, at this time, I think Frank was averaging about one film every four or five weeks, making uh, then just going right into another one, <laughs> and uh, that and not, not taking a break. I mean, you know, today, I mean, he takes a, you know a film director makes a film and. Might be two years before he makes another one. Yeah, it's it's well in this case, like I say, uh, from what uh, Antonio Mines has said in an interview, um, you know, he was you know, as you said, he was acting as kind of a producer and and kind of Johnny on the spot, right. making a lot of these movies with Franco in during this period. And from what he has said, uh, it took them about three weeks to film, edit, and dub yeah. one of these movies mm-hmm. from beginning to end. And that you know, on, honestly, sometimes they would they would be working on up to three movies at a time. So kind of separating which was which in his own memory would be kind of difficult. But the thing is, even with all that going on, even knowing uh, the first time I watched this, I was unaware of what Mines Mines's uh, behind the scenes role was in this movie and a bunch of others. But it makes me more impressed. To watch his performance in this and watch what he what watch what he does. I mean, yes, uh, it, it, it takes a brave man to uh, shave his own mustache off on screen. I'll give him that as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also, he's just a blast in this movie. Not that I've ever been disappointed with him, of course, but he's got a lot he's got to pull off here because one, he's playing uh, he's playing a bit of a scumbag. This guy is not a nice guy. You would not like to meet and have to be around Al Piera. It's just mm-hmm. not a nice man. Mm-hmm. But this movie has a certain energy that's, I mean, right from the very beginning, from the opening seconds of this movie, we're looking at Al as a desperate man. I mean, he is in trouble. He is in debt to people he really should not be in debt to. And his plan, he's packing his bags and he's getting out of town. He 
is well aware that his life is on the line and he just doesn't have the money to pay off these debts. And, uh, you know, once we have once we have Lena and I and I'm very glad that that Lena Ramey's character is named Lena. It, it makes it a lot easier to discuss this movie. Yes. But what, what I love is that once again, even though this was one of 12 movies that he made in 1982 or 83, I think it was 80, 83. He was, there's there's still a lot of interesting detail. I I was shocked on rewatching this movie to notice, and if you you go back, people, you can listen and you can pick it up. When when, uh, Lena Ramey's character is introduced, when she comes into that hotel room and starts talking to Al to hire him for this job of going and picking up this this purse out of the car car, uh, trunk, just in the background you can hear a police siren. Now, I didn't take special note of that at first because that could just be some some audio bleed over until it suddenly clicked in my head oh no wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute all this is post sync dubbed so any sound that i'm hearing is something that they are doing on purpose and then i started paying attention and then later on once he has uh, gone to the uh to the junkyard had his unfortunate murderous run-in with the two goons and come back and is speaking to her again there's a slightly louder police siren under their dialogue again. And it's, 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 it's this wonderfully, I, I, I would call it subtle because it would take you some time to pay attention to it, maybe. And I didn't pick up on it until a second or third viewing. But it's obvious they're putting that there because that is a warning sign. <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is a warning sign. There are so many red lights flashing on the dashboard right. for Al, and he is not paying attention. Right. They, they, yeah, they're, they're red flags or, or red lights, but only, only sonically. You know, they're, they're, they're warning bells <laughs> and uh, warning sirens. And uh, see, for... Franco, what you have to remember about Franco, too, and I have to keep reminding myself of this, is here's a guy, he started out wanting to be a musician when he was a young boy. He wanted to, he, play, he was good at playing the piano, he wanted to become a musician in, you know, life, and uh, and he's composed a lot of the scores for his films, or, or co-composed them, along with Daniel White and other people, and he's also composed scores for other people's films, and, um, and some Spanish films that are fairly obscure and music is a big part of his life and uh, so uh, so the soundtrack in a Franco film even though it's post dubbed at least in 80s films up to the time of his digital career uh, even though it's post dubbed it's very carefully put together I think and uh, it's with a musician's ear okay not only not, not only the music but the use of sound you're and that, that's a great thing to pick up the, the sirens you know because yeah it's like it's like L doesn't see the danger or hear any danger, but uh, the viewer picks it up, even even if it's subconsciously that there's danger about this person. Well, I mean, just like the classic noirs, noirs from the you know the 40s and 50s. I mean, unfortunately, Al is being led around by his genitals. Yes, uh, she has him wrapped around her fingers. Now, at the same time, there's a certain point where uh, if, if, their, if their entire encounter in this story had just been that hi- her hiring him for $5,000 to retrieve this purse, mm. and that, that, that might, you know, there, there's a certain symmetry to that. If that were the end of it, okay, whatever. Uh, a chance encounter ending with a sexual tryst over and done. But then, of course, 
the beauty of that is that he then takes this money that he's been paid, goes to pay off one of his debtors, and discovers, oh, she's married to this guy I owe all this money to. <laughs> that's interesting. So that's how she knows me. Ah, well, this is a classic femme fatale thing because it's at that point where they uh, slyly set themselves up to meet again and to have sex again, that it becomes, or it should become to Al, pretty obvious that something's not right here. I think we got a problem. <laughs> this woman, uh, well, they have sex. After they have that sex the second time, well, he's already had another red flag. He's watched her sexy stage show, which involves her orally gratifying a man on stage. That should be a big red flag to him that sex for this woman is not necessarily anything tied to her emotional contact with other human beings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is something that should be another great big red light flashing on the dashboard telling him he's got to get out of this car before it goes over a cliff. <laughs> he's just not going to do it. Right. She uses sex as a, she's a, she's a, she's a, a sex worker in a sense. Okay. Um, I'm not saying all strippers are sex workers, but she uses part of her job, you know, sexual activities, part of her strip show. Okay. So yeah, she's a kind of a sex worker. She, she knows how to use it to be a good, put on a good show in the strip club. So she's a, she's a pro at that. And it's like um, talking about, you know, her husband is, is already, you know, is, is, is already is a professional, well-known professional criminal who all owes money to and who's going to be a threat as the film progresses. Um, it reminds me once again of Kirk Douglas in Out of the Past. And Jane Greer is the femme fatale. And uh, what, what happens is Kirk Douglas sends her after Robert Mitchum because he wants Robert Mitchum for something, you know. And uh, so that's, and you don't know, and then you realize that she, yeah, She's not only been sent to ensnare him, but she's also planning to use him to eliminate her husband who is controlling her, okay? So she can take over her husband's role in the business, the illegal business, you know, and there's, and the, as they keep making the point is, there's like three or four people in town who run everything, who run the underworld, who run the numbers, who run the uh, prostitution, who run the drugs, okay? And uh, they are going to be eliminated one by one by her and whoever she can find to, you know, do the eliminating, and that's going to be Al. Yeah, our, our perennial sucker, Al Pier. Right. Al Pier, the so PI she, or, or, or punk in this case. Right, she's got big plans for him. She's got, she's got a, even before she walks into that room, first time she walks into his apartment, she's got it all planned out. Well, the uh, the the antecedents from you know, from film noir. I, I what she the two that she most reminded me of are uh, the, are Barbara Stanwyck's character in Double Indemnity from uh, 1944. Right. Uh, Philly, uh, Phyllis Dietrichson. Uh, right. Because of course in that film, you know she she's looking to find someone to help her kill her husband right. in such a way that she can collect double the insurance payout right. if it looks like an accident. Right. And the fact that she's able to sucker a man into going along with this, of course, all comes down to the fact that it, it's her sexual allure and her willingness to, to use sex as a weapon. And, you know, she's, she's amazing in that because much like what Lena Romay does in this movie, she presents herself in many different ways to 
our poor sucker at the center of the of the story right to to convince him to go along with what she wants to do uh she's she's uh she presents herself as a sexually frustrated wife just like the barbara stanwick character in double indemnity she presents herself as a damsel in distress right yes indeed once again as a uh, and then it, it becomes clear as we go along, she's also going to present herself as a as kind of a heartless killer, so that he'll feel braver as well in doing the things that she's asking him to do. In other words, you're not in this alone. We're both doing this. Right. We're both committing these acts of violence together to kind of bolster him and get him to go along. And then along along with that, she also reminded me heavily of Joan Bennett's character Kitty March in uh, Scarlet Street from 1945. Ah, yes, yes, because. Uh, one of the the distinct memories of Joan Bennett's character in that is, is how brilliantly she plans and she flirts and she she uses her sexuality to control the men in her life, and uh, she's she's almost like the classic wolf in wolf's clothing because she's she presents right. herself in ways that are very obvious obviously meant to be very forward. But at the same time, her, her beauty and the way she cajoles people and the way she flirts allows her to set things in motion to get what she wants. And, of course, another thing that reminded me a little bit of it is I'm always a little surprised to watch that film. Scarlet Street, Scarlet Street was an independently produced movie. And uh, you'll notice that if you see a good print of this, a uh, good print of the movie uh, anywhere on uh, Blu-ray or, or even on DVD, because you'll notice that uh, there's a couple of scenes where Miss Bennett is wearing a see-through top that uh, would have been quite verboten in the 1940s if this were a Hollywood, you know, a strictly studio project. And so once you get to the point where of course, with Lena Romay, you're looking at her a lot of the time wearing uh, either very little next to nothing or see-through clothing. It just harkens back to uh, Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity walking out in a in a uh, a bath towel right, uh, out of the right. shower, or Joan Bennett lounging around this uh, apartment with uh, one of her suckers in what amounts to a see-through top. Right. And so there, there are all these things that clearly movie fanatic Jess Franco is drawing on and using and kind of filtering through his own sensibilities to create this. Because remember, it's it's his name on the on the script. Uh, he has kind of fudged things by giving himself two pseudonyms for the script, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> the 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 Clifford Brown pseudonym and his own name. But and his own name, right? But it's 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 clearly Jess Franco rolling around in film noir and conjuring his own from different pieces from those classic movies. Right, he loves the film noir genre. There's no doubt about it. And and here he makes his own film noir. And he was was doing this back in the the 1960s when he was... A lot of his early films have uh, very strong film noir elements too, like Death Whistles, The Blues. It's a Spanish film... Um, made in Spain at that time it was made under heavy censorship ruling, and um, I hope it gets a you know decent Blu-ray release sometime. It's, it's very, very, very much influenced by Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. Okay, visually, it's, it uses wide-angle lenses and very, very stylized black and white photography. And uh, yeah, so Franco's been making semi-noirs or, or neo-noirs um, by the, for 20 years by the time he does this film. Okay, it's he's the genre he keeps coming back to. I think he's frankly is mostly you mentioned just Franco to people that think, oh yeah, he makes he makes horror films or he makes erotic films, you know what I mean, or adult films. Very few people think of him as like a 
are going to say, oh, yeah, he makes film rars. You know, they don't think that. But if, if you really look at his his filmography, he keeps coming back to film rars. He, he was right from the beginning till the end of his career. I mean, the last film he made is a Al Pereira film noir film. And Al, Antonio Mayans playing that character once again, who gets involved with these very... Uh, very dubious women <laughs> in his very last film. So he's he was doing it right till the end of his career, right till the end of his life. He uh, went back to this character, went back to making a, a film noir about a guy who walks around with a gun underneath his suit, his suit coat, you know? <laughs> well, um, the idea, I, I meant to mention this earlier, but when we see uh, Lena's sex show, um, right. well, first of all, that, that footage for, from Lena's uh, stage show uh, was also used in another movie they made that same year, <laughs> right? Uh, con- uh, what, uh, Confessions of an Exhibitionist. Yes, I was gonna, uh, came uh, out came out the same year, nineteen eighty three, I believe. It was it was, ni- was not nineteen eighty two actually. They were oh, but what happens is with these films, they didn't actually they were made in maybe eighty maybe eighty one late eighty one early eighty two eighty two, but they don't get released in Spain sometimes until like eighty three or eighty four, and of course never in the United States. You know, they, they don't really get immediately released that year. So Franco may have made eight, nine, you know, this year probably 10, 11, 12 films, but they ended up getting released maybe two or three years later in Spain because of, there's just such a backup of he's made so many films, they, they just can't be released immediately, you know? Well, it, the thing is, in that, st- in that in her stage show, that one time we see her perform on stage, mm-hmm. uh, there is a very, I mean, it's, it's there to show us something specific about the character. There's a lot it built into that scene that should be a big, you know, like I say, a big warning sign to our main character. Right. But one of the neat things is uh, that he's also, Franco's drawing on an image from one of his own previous films. Right. Uh, when she, uh, when she, uh, she looks up and has uh, semen and saliva dripping out of her mouth. Yes. Uh, that is a, that is, that could be a shot if you were tight enough on her face right out of female vampire and uh very much the same thing and of course what i what i love is that if he is doing that intentionally and i have to think that he is he's trying to draw your attention if you're aware of that movie to the idea that this woman is not just a film fatale i mean you know there's also that phrase vamp which would be an alternate term for a film fatale which is of course short for vampire which is the whole idea of you know the, the the sexual vampire uh and of course it's a literal sexual vampire in the previous movie that we're speaking about, but in this one, it's a metaphorical thing. Uh, you know, the idea of a sexual vampire where she, uh, you know, she she leeches the virility and independence of yes. men from them, uh, leaving them shells of themselves. And of course, that is no doubt exactly what happens here, even though it's a bit more a bit, a bit more fatal in its uh, in right. its ending than uh, might you might necessarily get with a vampire who might uh, who might leave you alive for 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 later later victimization, but not in this case. Right now, it's interesting to note you you mentioned about this other film, Intimate Confessions of an Exhibitionist. Is I think that's one you were talking about. Yeah. yeah. Now, th- this film, th- this film we're talking about. Uh, Black Boots, uh, Leather Whip, was shot in the first maybe two weeks of January 1982 between the shooting of two other Jess Franco films, okay? Now, the film shot immediately before this was the film that you mentioned, Intimate Confessions of an Exhibitionist. Now, that film was shot, I believe the shooting started like in the last week of December, okay, of 1981, <laughs> 
Okay, so we're talking about, you know, that, that film was shot like maybe the last week of uh, December 1981, the first week in uh, January 1982, and right after that they go right into making this film in January, um, second week of January, third week of January 82 to the last week of January in two or three weeks. So, so basically those two films were made back to back. So that's a very good. Uh, point you make that uh, and then if you watch these and I, I had just been watching intimate confessions of exhibitions I finally got you know a, a file about from it and was watching and I did notice that yeah the footage used in that show that film is also reused here and not only that um, because it, it would look like otherwise that um, it was it was shot like in the same nightclub with the same audience you know shots with the same costumes and I realized no it might have been some scenes, but it's actually the footage recycled, you know. And uh, <laughs> this film was shot, by the way, Black Boots, um, Leather Whip, was shot totally in Malaga, which is a big tourist town in, in southern Spain, okay. And it was, um, I, I think the Intimate Confessions was also probably shot in, near there since they were made back to back. And one was made like in the first week of of January 82 and the other was made started making in the you know, third week of 82, 82 so yeah they're probably shot in the same city now after the these two films were made Franco made a third film The Sinister Dr. Orloff that was the next film he made and that was uh, also shot partially in the same area um, uh, partially on the Costa del Sol parts of it were shot in Alicante I believe which was like more on the east coast of uh, I'm sorry though um, yeah, the east coast of Spain, but up north, uh, and and that had, there were scenes in a nightclub there. Okay, and I think, I, I think they used the same discotheque or nightclub they used in this film. Yeah, I think the uh, I think the nightclub was named Pipers. There. In, yeah, it's called uh, yeah. the Pipers. It's called the Pipers Discoteca, the Pipers Disco, and I think they used the same. If you look at the film since Dr. Orloff, that's another one that's hard to find a good print of. Um, with subtitles on, but there's a scene where um, the killer goes in there in that film, Sinister Dr. Orloff, Dr. Orloff's son, and he's looking for a, you know, a, a woman to take home and kill, basically, or using his experiments. But it's the same, it's the same nightclub you see in this film, Intimate Confessions. It's the Piper's Discoteca. You can tell by the way it's designed, and it has very similar type audience type shots in the two, maybe some footage in that one too. So yeah, he uses the same locations and sometimes the same footage in film after film after film to save money and to make these, and that's how he makes these films in such a serial kind of quick, you know, um, B movie, B minus fashion made very quickly with using these kind of methods, using you know, recycle footage and using similar locations. So they can just stop one film on a Friday and start another film on a Monday, you know? <laughs> they just bam, 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 bam. He shot and edited these three films, Intimate Confessions of an Exhibitionist, and uh, Black Boots, Leather Whip, and Sinister Dr. Orloff. He shot those in two and a half months, and they were all legally registered the same day, March 25th, 1982, in Spain, okay? So, so they he began shooting in like the last week of um, December 1981, and by March 25th 1982, he had three films shot, wow. edited, post-produced, mixed in the can, 
and uh, registered with the Spanish Commission by March 25th, 1982. So that's like, basically, you're making like, you know, one film a month, okay? Which is an ins- an insane pace. Yeah, an insane pace. He was averaging, I, he was averaging, you know, at least a film every four or five weeks, and probably even more than that. And uh, w- one thing I, I think is a good bullet point here is I, I got a chance to interview Jess Franco in 19, in, I'm sorry, 2005, thanks to my friend Kid Gavin, who kind of hooked me up with him. And we talked about this film and other of his film neo-noirs. And uh, he told me that, in the first place, he called it, when, when I was talking about this film, he said, oh, yeah, you're talking about my, my black films. And by that he meant, he, he, he was speaking to me in English, but that's the that's what they're calling in Spain, black films, film, film noir, okay? Oh, that's yeah. What, that's what he turned. I, at first, I thought black films, and he said, "Yeah." He was talking about film noir. And he kept saying, "This is my; these are my black films." And he told me that he they were all shot for this company, Golden Films International, uh, in Spain. Uh, it was run by Emilio Laraja. Laraja, uh, he was the CEO, and based in Barcelona. And he said he was given complete artistic freedom on these films. He could shoot whatever he wanted. There was no uh, no restrictions on sex, violence, any topic he wanted. He had a free hand in casting, writing, shooting, scoring, post production, editing of these films. The only stipulate, the only caveat was, he had to make them within a very, very, very limited budget. Okay, very limited budget. Uh, we're talking about very low six figures, if that, you know. Oh, they weren't even that, yeah. according to Antonio Mayans, who would know to a degree the budgets on most of those movies that they made at that time were between 50000 and $70,000. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and I would say, yeah, they're very low six figures at the most, but yeah, they're, they're probably more in that range that you say. They just, he just didn't have any more money than that, okay? He could shoot and do whatever he wanted until they ran out of that money. And then he, he couldn't go to this producer, Emilio Garage, and say, well, we need more money. He just didn't have the money. He said, no, that's all you're going to get. And that's what Franco did. That's why he used these methods we're talking about, the recycled footage, the same locations. And uh, very, very, very... And he called me and he said, yeah, he goes, those films were very poor films. And I didn't know what he was talking about until I realized, okay, he's saying they were poorly financed, okay? Yeah, he, he, yeah. he felt like a poor man when he was making the films, not that he considered them poor. And he, he actually said that um, to me, he said, yeah, he goes, I... He goes, I appreciate, he, he appreciated me when I was praising the film. He said, well, thank you very much. He actually thanked me. He goes, very few people I talk to, very few journalists want to talk about these films in particular or, or think they're good because they're not like really horror films or not like have a lot of sex in them or things like that. They're, they're film noirs, they're thrillers, and they're more, they're, they're not really my what I'm known for, you know? So he was very, very uh, pleased that somebody actually wanted to talk to him about these films. Well, I think that the reason that few people would be talking to him about them is they're just, they're not as well known. They've been more difficult to see. Yes, yes. But, I mean, the the Golden Films International period, I mean, this period where he was making these films for uh, for Emilio Laraga in the the 80s, I mean, yeah, I... he made 39 films for them. 39 films. Yes. I want to I want to make sure we're aware of this. So you don't make 39 films for a, for a production company 
that isn't giving you something that you want. And as you said, it had to be the creative control. And, uh, you know, because it certainly wasn't, you know, high budgets. It was any, and from what Mayans has said, Jess Franco wasn't, he wasn't being paid some kind of salary over the top of those budgets. His salary came out of those film budgets. Yes, right. Which is why, which is why they would often end up shooting, um, shooting things in hotels where they were staying to make the movie. Yes. Yes. And, um, yeah, if, if he had 50000 or 75000 that included his salary. That not only included his salary, included the whole cast salary, the whole crew salary, his salary. That's it. They had to do everything, uh, food, everything had to be come out of that 50000 or whatever he had. And, yes, if you see this film, it's, it's almost all shot in hotel rooms. His girlfriend has a hotel room. Basically, it's just it's just obviously a hotel room. His room is a not really an apartment; it's a room in a hotel in Malaga somewhere. Uh, the doctor's office where the they're beating him, and you meet the dominatrix. That that that's obviously a hotel room somewhere. Yep. I, 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 th- I think I think I think they shot at a Holiday Inn, basically somewhere in Spain. There's Holiday Inns all over the world, and then uh, you know the, the the only time you see a house is when the Lena and her husband are together. They're in some kind of villa, and they're in the backyard. And that's the only time you really see a house. But ninety percent of the locations are hotel rooms. And and I think I think in some of the golden films, Frank actually shot in the house where Emilio Laraga lives. It was his house, like um, the one uh, Moans of Pleasure, or some of the other ones where it, it did. They just take place in one house, and it was a producer's house. And so that saved a lot of money right there. And he probably had to go stay somewhere else, you know, while they were shooting. <laughs> and that's what that's what they would do. They would they would just use hotel rooms and uh, no sets or had to be built, nothing like that. No, no special effects, no nothing. It was just that's how they were done. Oh well, and also Franco's being his own cameraman yes. and uh, cinematographer, and uh, you know he had a he had a very small crew, yes. and he only he would only use you know a handful of actors at a time. Uh, you know you could you could be a, you could be someone who's in half of one of his movies, and you'd work on the film for all of two, possibly three days. Yes, exactly. And he had like uh, Juan Cozar shot a lot of these films. He's still around. He's like a still cameraman now. He lives in Brazil. He was a very good uh, cameraman. I, I guess he was. A, I had heard he was a newsreel cameraman for n- local news. He shot like for news footage before he worked for Franco, which is probably very good training for Franco's style of shooting because you got to kind of have a camera on your shoulder and go out to news stories with a crime and just shoot it quickly, you know. So um, and then he became a a DP, a director of photography for, for these Franco films, and he shot most of those golden films, if not all of them. Uh, it should be noted, too, a lot of the films, a lot of those 39 or 40 films he made for golden films, some of them weren't even ever released. Some of them, he, yeah. Frank would tell me that, Frank would tell me that something like maybe one-third of the films they made for that company ended up just in the producer's office and never got released because of tax problems, but to, because when you release a film there, you have to pay like for like uh, to to get it registered. You have to pay to get it like have a commission look at it and rate it, and you have to like pay taxes on it. Okay, and uh, a lot of those films just never got released. They didn't have the money to go through the releasing process. I mean, that's no problem for a big Hollywood film, but you know, for a film like that, they 
couldn't release it. And, and frankly, actually told me that Laraga ended up getting in big problem with the, the with the IRS of Spain. Okay, because if he didn't, he stopped working for Laraga and Golden Film. He stopped making that company kind of stopped business in the late 1980s because of this. Uh, what happened was they audited him and found out that hey, you know you. You um, didn't report this income on these films, or were hiding your income of films, and he got in a lot of yeah. trouble. Um, I think he had a—I don't know what happened to him, but he had a—he lost his business basically due to tax problems. And Jess told me about that and said it was too bad because he said he—he he, he ended up having to go back to work, and where he didn't have control anymore in the late 1980s, he went back to work for Eurocine, and. He, he made some bigger budgeted films like Faceless, which is a good film, but he didn't have the, quite the con creative control as he had on these films because he, this guy went out of business because of tax reasons and because he, he just ran out of money and he was, he was not being upfront about reporting his income, you know, and which he, <laughs> he, they didn't, he didn't really have much income. These films did not make a lot of money, okay? They were released, but, you know, they were like kind of what we call grindhouse films on the Spanish grindhouse circuit, you know? And, well, that's uh, something that Mayans talks about in this this amazing interview with Stephen Thrower. Mayans okay. talks a good a good deal about, uh, well, well, let's, to be blunt, Mayans calls Laraga an idiot. Uh -huh. He says that he did not try as hard as he should have to sell the movies. Right. And so there would, they would only end up being sold to really small markets in different foreign countries. He, Mayans goes out of his way to point out that it's like he, what, what he should have done is, is what Eurocine, Eurocine would do, which is, you know, you go to someplace like the Cannes Film Festival, you set up a booth. Right. And you start taking meetings and you start talking with people and you sell these things. You know, right. you get you get different deals in different countries. And this guy apparently didn't do that or would not do that. No, he would not do it. Yes. And it and it means that these movies are completely underseen. Uh, and one of the shocking things that Mayans, I mean, this this sounds crazy, but it, it, he's he knows what he's talking about. He was deeply involved in this stuff. Yes. He said that for a lot of these movies, they would they would sell this they would sell the movie to a distributor in Spain, and they would make two maybe three prints of the movie for the entire country. Yes. Yes. Which is insane. Yes. That means that at most, you're probably, if you make two prints, you're holding one of them back in case something goes wrong with the one that you have in circulation. So that if, a, if there's a problem, you can replace it. Which means that there's one print of a movie floating around out there, going from theater to theater, playing a, couple, you know, playing a week here, playing a week there. That's madness. That means that you are missing so much opportunity. I mean, don't get me wrong, I understand. Cre creating a print costs money right but you're you're it's almost as if you're pinching pennies and and stabbing yourself in the in the hand at the same time you're not able to really turn a lot of profit and then roll that into you know your own pocket and roll it into the production of the next picture if you're not going out of your way to a sell it in a lot of different countries to a lot of different distributors and make enough prints so that the movie can be playing in multiple locations and therefore possibly generate word of mouth, possibly roll a lot of money together because you can do some kind of larger advertising campaign that will allow people to be aware of the movie to a large degree or at least be semi-curious about it if there's some exploitable element that you can draw attention to. It's just crazy. Yes, and uh, Laraga, the, the producer, 
deliberately did that, deliberately undersold the films because he didn't want to spend the money up front. You know, there's all saying yeah. you got to spend, you know, and, and I guess in classic capitalism, you have to spend money to make money. Well, he wasn't like he, he didn't he didn't want to do that. He wanted to work under the radar. I mean, Jeff Riker told me that he was everything was he had he had like prints in his office. Basically, that's where they were stored. He didn't want to have somebody take a print to cons. He didn't want to go to film festivals. He didn't want to do anything like that. He wanted to work under the radar. He wanted to spend as little money as possible and make as much profit as possible. His his philosophy was, well, I'll make more money if I don't spend money, which is not true, okay, in the film business. <laughs> no, not in the film to, business, yeah. You, you do have to spend at least a minute. He didn't want to spend that minimum of effort to go to film festivals, to go to take even one print of those three prints to con. no. He just wanted, he just sent out a few prints to grindhouse theaters. Probably one was lost, maybe two were lost, and he ended up maybe with one print coming back to his office with splices. And um, that's why today it's so hard to find good prints of these films when they make a, a Blu-ray, although this one is, and they did find an excellent print. Um, these, these films were actually released on VHS in the late 1980s in the U.S. to a Spanish to a Spanish uh, language video company in Los Angeles, okay? It was called Caliente Video or Million Dollar Video. And I actually purchased, not this one, but a, when I first got in Franklin in the mid-80s when I got my VCR, I, I heard about this company I, and I sent away for two and I got two of his films and of, they're both Golden Films International. They're both now out on Blu-ray. And I, I bought them for 19.99, and they were very nicely packaged in those big shiny boxes and they both looked excellent they were both in shining condition they weren't they looked like they were just pristine prints but they were on video VHS and that was way before that was 10 years before DVD was even in the market you know so they, they were actually released in Spanish language only but you know very few people they, they might be in Spanish language you know grocery stores or in Los Angeles or something like that but they weren't widely distributed here or anywhere really it, it's like you know they didn't spend any money they didn't make any money Franco got paid something I'm sure Mayans got what he paid a little bit of it you just had to keep making films to make a living that's the story of Jess Franco's career <laughs> and Mayans career too he's Antonio Mayans is still working it's in, in Spain you kind of really you you really got to keep working if you're in the entertainment business, you know, uh, because it's like uh, now everything is very regulated there, you know, and uh, and they have very high taxes there now. So you you got to keep working, and your next project is important as a project you're working on. But then it was especially important. That's why Frank was always thinking like, what's my next? In the middle of shooting one film, he's thinking, how am I going to get my next film off the ground? Yeah. Well, I'm telling you this. Whatever they paid Antonio Mayans for this film probably wasn't enough to be right. completely naked and writhing on the ground and being whipped by some crazed woman in a gold lame outfit. I mean, yes, exactly. Right. That's a great. That's a. That's a. First of all, that the the sequence. This sequence where um, he's stripped nude and uh, beaten with a whip yes. is uh, Stephen yes. Thrower in his book Flowers of Perversion makes the uh, makes the guess, and it's probably a pretty good guess that this may have been the scene that kind of was the seed that allowed Jess Franco to build this entire scenario around it. Because this is, it truly is a brilliant scene where, where Al Pierre is able to, I mean, he, let, let's just say this is the scene that shows that Al isn't, he, either he's extraordinarily lucky or he is actually competent to a degree 
in certain in certain areas. Yes. The fact that he's able to turn the tables, he's completely nude, being held at gunpoint and being beaten yes. with a whip. Yes. He's able to turn the tables and he's smart enough to continue making the sounds so that the blind lady, the, the person he's there to kill in the first place, actually thinks that uh, all this debauchery is still going on as she continues to masturbate yes. in her excitedness about what's happening yes. to him. Uh, it's it's a, it's a great scene. It, it is honestly one of my favorite Jess Franco scenes. Yes. Uh, I was taken aback when I first saw this because it seems like such an inventive piece of, of just mm. film noir madness and also the kind of thing that you could never have imagined yes. being in uh, a film noir or even a, an American-made neo-noir because, I mean, he gets the gun and then manages to kill her while she's masturbating. It's it's such yes. a transgressive scene. It is such an over-the-top yes. element where the sex and death things are thrown yes. right next to each other. It is an ingenious scene. It is masterfully done. Uh, Mayans is working his behind off in this sequence, besides being completely nude. It's really, really effective and strangely impressive that, uh, I mean, let, let's put it this way. If this film were better known, I can see that scene having eventually been copied by some filmmaker down the road to the point, to the point where there would be no doubt as to it being right. a copy of this scene because it is so incredible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's the kind of scene that, you know, I was thinking of Brian De Palma, okay? Yeah. Who was making films kind of similar to this, and not like, um, you, know, you know, in, in certain scenes in Scarface or in certain scenes of Body Double. Okay? Dressed to Kill, Blowout, yeah. Or dressed to Kill. Uh, he, was, he was making kind of um, film noirs or people, people in my remember in the 1980s, people were criticizing Brian De Palma for being, copying Hitchcock. You're saying, well, he's just copying Alfred Hitchcock. But he really wasn't. He was, I think he was... I think he was to a certain extent, but he was also into film noir. And and Franco, I've got no, I've got some older interviews with Franco where he said he was, De Palma was one of the American directors who he really admired. You know that he was kind of on the same wavelength with him that they were trying to make kind of modern film noirs, yeah. and they were both influenced by good older film noirs like by Hitchcock and other directors. A lot of European directors, European filmmakers in the 80s and 90s will go out of their way to to acknowledge that they are that they were fans of De Palma and what he was doing because they saw it as moving the Hitchcock ideas further you know further along the line right. not just push not just pushing into R-rated territory which even Hitchcock got the chance to do you know right there at the end of his career but taking the ideas that are sometimes sublimated within a film noir and bringing them to the fore and right. making them the thing that obviously is driving the story and that's that's what a lot of European filmmakers were impressed by, and that's certainly something that Jess Franco does right here. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. We you're talking here about how he turns the situation how he gets involved in this really sleazy situation. You know, he's locked in he's yes. locked in this room naked, he's with a naked guy, a dominatrix is whipping him, another woman is looking at it and pleasuring herself getting off on it. And what's he gonna do, you know? He got he, he grabs a gun away from the guy who's like younger and more light than he is, knocks him down knocks out the dominatrix go and keeps making the sounds like you know he's in he's not he, like he's being whipped and by whipping the the floor with the whip that he's taken from the dominatrix then he goes over and executes you know our you know the other woman who is to who is the one of the partners in the whole prostitution racket in town who is you know associated with the husband of Lino okay so he get 
he kills like uh, three or four birds with one stone in the scene. Okay, and, and <laughs> yeah, and then his, and then his next scene, he's he's having he's 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 being orally uh, orally attacked yes. by Lena. <laughs> Who's who's doing her best to keep him from thinking too hard about all of the things that are going on here by having sex with him as often as she can to keep him mentally fried, right. to keep him from connecting too many dots and starting to wonder if maybe he might be a sucker too. Yes, and and and, and she's doing a good job at it. I mean, I mean, in, oh, yeah. in that scene before which we were just talking about, he 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 shows himself to be a competent. PI who get, gets himself in a bad situation, but actually gets out of the situation by the skin of his teeth, by 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 sheer um, by sheer physical and uh, and intellectual and mental um, being on top of the situation. Okay, being on top of knowing that he read the, the instead of just being on top of Antonio. Right. Yes. yes. <laughs> right. But, but, well, something else. I th- there are two. Li- there's a lot of wonderful lines of dialogue in this that I think. Are eminently quotable, which is another thing that I lack about this. I don't. I know that that's something that uh, a lot of people who are uh, only passingly familiar with just Franco movies would would possibly scoff at. But there really is a lot of great noirish dialogue in this movie. And uh, I got to say, my my two favorite lines from the from the Lena character uh, when she's first when she's first meeting uh, Alpiera, she says, uh, "Nothing embarrasses me," and of course. As the movie goes on, it's not hard to figure that she's telling the truth there. Yes. Uh, but also, one of the most telling lines that she has at a certain point in the movie is when she's talking with Al, when she's setting everything in motion to start this, uh, to start this plan of hers to do away with her husband and her husband's business associates. She says straight to his face, you're dumber than I thought. And what I love is that she could say that at that point in time, have him brush it aside right. and go on because, of course, you know, the, the sex kind of, you know, pushes everything else out of his head. But at the same time, she's I, I think that is the moment when she realizes this is the guy I can use. This is definitely the guy who everything I've heard about him, you know, being, you know, this sleazy guy who would probably do this kind of thing if properly incentivized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're dumber than I thought. This is going to be easier yes. than it might might have been otherwise. And she's right. And she's and, and she's right that she she is a pro at what she does, which is yes. which is using sex as a weapon. Okay, she uses sex as a weapon, and uh, and she's also a, a sex worker who uses sex as a weapon. And she's also positioning herself to take over once again this uh, prostitution, gambling, narcotics operation, which is being run out of this. Uh, you know this disco or this uh, you know strip club, okay? And she, she gets it all. She went. She she wins it all. She eliminates, has him. She has you know her fall guy eliminate all of her yeah. associates, and then she you know um, manages to you know make sure he's taken care of too. You know, in more ways than one. It's like uh, <laughs> you, know, you know. It's like. You know, she's got this, as I said before, I, I'm totally convinced she has this all thought out before she first walks into his apartment early in the film. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's she's playing she's playing uh, every instrument herself, and she's really good at playing these instruments. One of the things that really I, I'm kind of surprised by in this film again and again and again is something that I would not have expected to be in a Jess Franco movie from this period, but my goodness, here it is. 
the the if you watch this movie more than once, you will start to notice just how questions of identity start to play into everything in this film and how the characters react and act around each other. Because of the, 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 the central position in this kind of play of different identities and present, the presenting of different facets of her personality is definitely the Lena Ramey character. Lena, who is, she is, first of all, we are shown that she's definitely lying to Al about her relationship with her husband. Now, her husband clearly seems to be a bisexual man, but her story to Al that there is no relationship really between the two of them any longer, that he he doesn't have any sexual interest in, in her anymore, is a lie. Yes. And uh, the, the movie carefully introduces that until you get to about an hour into the movie here, and we see that, no, 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 he definitely has sexual interest in his wife still. But earlier on, there's that scene where they're talking by the by the pool, and he's he's expressing that he's jealous when he knows that she's been with another man, as she lies to him about who that other man was because she doesn't want to let him know that that Al is the guy that she's currently stringing along and having a relationship with for devious means. Yes, and so there's this. Uh, she she's lying to Al. That's our first. That's our first definite indicator. She's lying to Al about that relationship. So th- that's a red flag for us. Not that we particularly need them, but at this point, when he sees uh, Lena having sex with her husband, that should have been one of the biggest warning signs to him. That that should have sent him screaming away from him. He should have been on the road immediately and going to another city because. The one thing that has driven him up to this point is the knowledge that, okay, okay, she's got to be telling me the truth about some of this, right? Right. Even if she's fibbing here and there, maybe she's kind of coloring certain aspects of the relationship or her connection to different things. This should be the moment, and you can see he kind of has the thought, he should be getting out of Dodge. He should be leaving because this this one's not to be trusted. Whatever's going on between her husband and her she is plotting to kill him and she's either using sex to keep him in line or she has absolutely no ability to care about anybody if it involves sex. This is not an indicator that she cares about you or is interested in you in in any way just because she's having sex with you. So there are so many (laughs) red flags that Al ignores. And of course, the, 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 the standard thing to say is, well, yes, but if he paid attention to those red flags, there would be no movie. But while that is true, this is a typical film noir thing. This is, this is the beautiful crime story thing where it's not that the character has to act like an idiot. The character has to act like a man who wants to believe something that isn't true. Yes. And he really wants to believe that he can pull this all off, get all this money, have this woman, and get out of town and be safe. And, man, he's just so painfully, painfully wrong. One other thing, uh, I, 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 took, I took the initiative to look up the, the locations where a lot of this stuff was filmed just to get a look at them today. Uh, you know, because, like, most of the, uh, the, the this film and a lot of the films that he made in 1982, obviously, all, all the, some of the 12 movies, they were shot in, in a lot of places there on the on the Mediterranean Sea coast. Yes. Uh, uh, was it uh, uh, Alcantara? Near Cartagena. Uh, 
and it's it, if you look at these places, there's like there's a place where some of this stuff was shot called the uh, the Rio Mara State, and you can go yes. online today and look at photos of it now. My goodness, it's still just a beautiful travel destination, kind of a vacation spot. It's just beautiful beaches, and of course, they're shooting uh, in the, in these locations in as you said December, January, February, because those would be the months when there'd be fewer tourists and they could yes. they could get in and out cheap, and there wouldn't be a whole lot. They wouldn't have to you know worry about wrangling crowds and getting people out of the way of shots and things like that. Uh, it's also the reason why you might, you know, you might see Lena uh, wearing, a, you know, that, that white coat that she's wearing when she's wearing barely nothing else. It's probably pretty cold out there. But the uh, yeah, when they're when they're in the bayou making love, she's wearing this coat with a fur collar. Yeah. yeah. And I have to admit <laughs> it, the strangeness of the strange person that I am. Once my pushes her up against the tree, I just kept thinking, oh, man, you're going to mess up that white jacket. Don't do that. Right. <laughs> She's got this. She got this. She got this pristine white jacket on with a it looks like a fur collar or something. But you know, yeah. I, I mean, why is she wearing it? And then you realize, okay, yeah, this was. Then, as we know, as we found out, that this is was filmed in January. It's not like January in the United States, you no. know, especially where I live. But it's, even in Spain, it's gonna, it's not one of the warm months. You know, what I mean, it's like uh, one of the cold months, and they don't get snow like we do. But you know, they have. You know, it's cooler, and yes, it was shot there off tourist season. Now, the Ryomar um, Urbanization Project, that was a project that I believe it was both uh, building up, building even more apartments and building up living spaces and commercial spaces, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, and Malaga, where 90% of this in area and where this film was shot, was one, is one of the big tourist places of Spain. That's that's their main industry, tourism. Um, a lot of these places where Frank was shot, like uh, up north in Alicante, that was in the northeast of Spain, that, or, or more in the eastern Spain, that, that's a very tourist area. Benidorm, those are all cities people go to when they visit Spain. They want to go either the Costa del Sol or the there's another one called the Costa Brava, Costa Blanca. You know, they're mostly like hotels around the, the beach there. And the, those are great, great um, tourist areas for Spain. Now, of course, that might have been changed more recently, you know, but uh, when, when there's not as much tourism, you know, nowadays. But, uh, you know, back in those days, that those places were filled with tourists. That was a big industry there. And Frank would just took advantage of it. Well, I think it's interesting. I checked the distances between like uh, the Ryomar the Estate and the the location uh, where the say where uh, the the car dump was and the, right. the the hotel where at the beginning of the movie we see Al's uh, apartment. Uh, and right. uh, I check I check the maps and they're about uh, two hundred eighty five miles apart. So what's what's obvious and then, wow. you, then you learn you learn from uh, Antonio Mayans who was of course you know involved in all of this stuff, which is that they would uh, the re- one of the reasons that they would shoot two or three movies at the same time is. Well, we're gonna have, you know, we're gonna make this road trip today and shoot for two or three hours, you know, someplace that's almost three hundred miles away. Uh, he was, he was, he was shooting the stuff that he needed for the film currently under production, and the other one that he's thinking he's going to start right. as soon as this one's finished. He's gonna go ahead and shoot a few scenes for, uh, for that as well, right. uh, because we've already made the trip. We've already burned the gas. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead. Take advantage of the fact that we're already here. Right. 
And it's one of those things where you watch, uh, if you watch, a, if you watch enough of these, it's like, it'd be great to, over the course of a couple of weeks, watch all 12 movies that he made, uh, in that one year, just watch them back to back and to see a lot of the same sites. It's probably a lot of the same shots yes. made on the same day, even if yes, he was exactly. consciously shooting them for right. the next story that he had in mind. Right. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of, Frank would film in certain provinces like, like Murcia and, uh, you know, um, Malaga. And uh, it's, it's not, it's, you know, Alicante, there, there, there's certain provinces there. It's like a city, and then they have like a province around it. So they, there might be, they might shoot some scenes in the city, then go to the part of the seashore or a bayou, which is like maybe pretty far from the city, and shoot there, and then come back to the city again. And yeah, I'm sure it was all timed out so that they could get as much shooting done in one area as possible. And, uh, uh, and and not only and have extra footage over for another film. <laughs> well, something something else. I'm really uh, I was curious because there was something about the the face of the actor who plays Lena's husband, the, right. the bisexual criminal. Guy. Al- Alfre- Alfredo, uh, um, I think it's Alfredo Kier. Kier, right? Kier, right? And uh, the thing is, and I looked him up. He only ever made two movies, and they're both Jess Franco movies. So I haven't seen him anywhere else. But there's something very striking about him, and he's just another one of those actors who probably never had any intention of ever making movies, and he right. got talked into it by Jess Franco and made a couple of movies for him, uh, probably all at the same time. <laughs> you know, I think he's also, isn't he also in uh, Uego, Sucio, and Casablanca? Yeah, yeah, that's the other movie, yeah. And and, and that's a film noir, too. That's, yep. that's, that's just as much of a film noir as this. It's about an alcoholic writer who gets involved with his uh, very sinister characters and which makes me think that there are some actors that would kind of key certain story ideas within just Franco's head that would make him think oh this is a face that belongs in a crime story right and it's just it's just a thought and I would of course have loved the opportunity to have a conversation with him to ask him you know to kind of reflect on that idea because I, I mm-hmm. think there may be something to that where you you know you when you're working at the pace he's working at when you're throwing out as many ideas as he was constantly throwing out there there have to be different forms of inspiration and, and you do it long enough as he did you do it for decades over time you start to be able to see possibly he could even see it himself himself the the inspirations that are there in front of you which are oh you know a conversation with someone and you get you get to looking at their face or the way they hold themselves or the way they speak and it makes you think oh they would be perfect for this kind of role and then you talk them into it um the the actress who plays al's girlfriend is it i think it's rocio freixia or yeah rocio uh rocio uh Plesias, I think is the way you oh, say you're, it. Oh, you're better <laughs> pronouncing than it. I, you're better at pronouncing than me. Thank goodness. But it, it, it's not the way it looks. The Spanish names are very hard because the, uh, I think the G sometimes are pronounced as H's. And, yeah. Okay. But Rocio Plesias. Rocio Plesias. Well, she was she was in uh, very few movies. A total of 19 credits. Right. With a with you know if you if you're stretching things, considering some of them are listed as uncredited, but and some of them are short films. But once again, most of what we're looking at here are Jess Franco pictures. Right. So this this little actress who's very cute and spends most of her screen time totally naked and does just a perfectly fine job. Um, it, she seems to be quite naturalistic, but 
obviously she's not someone who thought that this was a career. She's just someone who got talked for you know for a few years, maybe five or eight. That hey, let's 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 be part of this roving band of lunatics who makes movies. Now her most her most memorable Jess Franco role for me, she was in the film called Moans of Pleasure, which is also uh, that's out on on Blu-ray from Severn Films, and she plays. Uh, it's about three or four people in this uh, villa. Once again, in the villa belonged to the Golden Films International CEO, uh, Laraga, who are have this S and M relationship, and uh, it's, it's you know three of the four people end up dying because <laughs> it gets it gets too rough. And she plays this woman who's released from a mental institution, and um, she's one of the survivors and. She plays a very sinister, very sadistic character, totally opposite of this. And that was a 1982 adaptation of a Marquis de Sade story. And once again, that was filmed in, but that was filmed in um, Alicante, which is pretty much to the north and the east of, you know, where this film was made. Well, the character she plays in this, Al's girlfriend, um, she's... She's ba- she's bouncy. She's she's funny. She's she's uh, she she's a little bit of a live wire. Even though mm-hmm. uh, even though she ends up very openly cheating on him right in front of her. Right. I mean, I mean, cheating on him right in front of him. And uh, I think that the the fact that she seems to be the only character in the movie who who isn't ever presenting some kind of alternate identity to anyone. She seems yes. the only really open character in the movie because even the guy she she's in bed with when Al finds them together, she refers to as her cousin and just, you know, this this guy that she called up to to have sex with her because she she was she was in need of the of the activity and Al was not around. And of course, remember all this time, Al is you know not telling her what he's up to at all. Right, and so right. He's with other women, right? Right, but but even the character that she's uh, sleeping with on the side there uh, is a, the, is one of the characters who ends up in that amazing uh, naked right. na- you hold, holding a gun on Al while he's whipped, you know, nude in a hotel room, and it's one of these. So you see him. Uh, at the end of the scene with when he meets Al with Al's girlfriend saying, hey, I like, you know, I like this guy. But then right. again, the next time we see him, he's holding a gun on Al because he's being told to by someone who's paying him money. And it's just one of these things. And, he, and then he, of course, he's killed by Al. But it's one of those things where, once again, she's about the only character we don't see other sides of. She doesn't seem yes. to be presenting different faces. Uh, and of course, nobody could keep up with the various personas that Lena is flashing to everyone in sight uh, as she plays this nasty little game about getting getting all this money in place. But the uh, the the beauty of it is that Al is such an inept character. At a certain point, you have to realize that he thinks that he is. He's the player. He's the one who's actually swift enough and smart enough and intelligent enough to pull all this stuff off mm-hmm. and get away with it. And he's still completely unaware the whole time that he is being played. He is the one who is being manipulated. And um, that is, he pre- he thinks he's presenting all these different faces to all these people. And yet most of them see right through him the instant they see him. Yes. Almost everyone he goes after immediately cops to the fact that this guy is here for nefarious ends. And I think it's hysterical that Lena is capable of doing so much in this movie. She, her, her character, I should say, uh, 
the the character Lena as opposed to Lena Romay. Uh, although both statements could be true, uh, the the joys of watching an inept private investigator, which happens in a lot of uh, film noirs, that's one of the joys of them, is when you get near the final third of the uh, story in a film noir and you realize that this central P.I. character is just not as bright as he thinks he is. And, th- and then the realization that comes almost simultaneously with that, which is that there's another character who has been so good at presenting different faces to different people that she, it's usually a she, folks, has definitely won the day and is going to walk away with all the marbles. And this, like I say, I'm completely surprised. I'm utterly stunned by how clever this script is. It's not, don't get me wrong, he's not breaking new ground here. This is a typical neo-noir. This is building a new edifice out of reused blocks but it is a beautiful beautiful building that he constructs here and it's i it took me by surprise you asked me at the beginning of our our conversation here uh what my first initial reaction was Uh, my initial reaction to this movie was wow this is impressive this is the kind this is the kind of film that i just wasn't expecting from him at this period of time and once we get to the point where the different you know different people are being knocked off. We are definitely in a position where you know the threads are starting to come together. Uh, people are dying. The people who are still alive are starting to get really worried about the fact that these other people they're involved in this criminal enterprise with are getting uh, bumped off. It's it's fun because I I have to admit there came a certain point when I had to admit to myself. I don't know how Franco's going to end this. There's a lot of different ways he can go with this thing, right? There's there's different ways to play this out. And the thing is, once I went back and rewatched it after I know how this thing's going to end, and once again, folks, we certainly hope that you are aware <laughs> of what's going on here and you're not listening to us without having seen this thing already. The, the joys of watching this thing unwind... Uh, it, it, it's it's a it's a glorious thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. Of course, it's a movie chocked with a, chocked full of nudity, lots of nudity, both male and female. There's a very nearly explicit sexual activity on more than one occasion. Uh, I mean, the the it's undeniable that the exploitive elements in the story are uh, nudity and sex across the board. The, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of violence in it as well, but uh, of course it's the kind of violence that you can get away with, uh, gunshots, without having to spend a lot of money, because that would take time and effort and really make it difficult to get, oh, you know, five or six or seven or eight or ten sh- scenes shot in a day. But the joys of this movie are not the same kind of joys that you get from a strictly explicitly erotic Jess Franco film from the period, but it uses those elements to bolster and kind of enhance and make, honestly, to make sharper the, the, the crime elements within it. Because there's a... You're never really sure exactly what the movie's going to throw at you. There's a certain... There's a certain uh, enviable uh, ability for the film to just throw something at you that okay 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 so it's, it's it's another it's another sex scene okay but you never know when one is going to occur there's some uh, unexpected structure to how he's going to lay everything out and then uh, at least the first time through 
I don't know if this was true of you. I kept wondering, are we about to range ourselves right into the X-rated territory here? Because that was certainly something that Franco and Mayans and Lena Romay did quite a bit during this period. And I kept wondering if this is what it was going to turn into. And it gets really close more than a few times. Yes. Uh, yeah, it should be noted that I think, I think Franco really did, frankly, Franco had been involved with hardcore sex films in the 1970s, okay, he was working for the producer Robert Donnell. He made a few of them, and uh, but this time the the Golden Films International period, um, he he he, you know, were were more story films. They were more. Uh, he made all different types of films for not only film neo noirs like these. He made a few horror films, Dr. Orloff film. He made some comedies for them. He made different types of films for them. And, uh, you know, the, he didn't really get into hardcore again in the 1980s until, like, the mid-80s, but um, 83, 84, 85, and then by 80, 84 and 85, he was making some really heavily hardcore films where they're, like, 50 or 60 minutes long, and it's all hardcore action. Okay, this this doesn't go that far. There, there's no real plot to them or, yeah. or, or, or characters, but they're, they're kind of, like, over-the-top, Characters and they're, they're, there's like a, a basic maybe comedy type plot and they're, but they're you know they're they're, they're well made for what they are but you know they're they're not like this. Uh, as I said when 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 I when I was talking to Jess when I had interviewed him in, in 20, 2005, you know about fifteen years ago he seemed surprised that I took these this film and other of his what he called black films seriously because. And they weren't even well known in the U.S. at that time. I, I had just went out of my way to get them, and you couldn't get them in Blu-rays even then. I had to get them, in, yeah. you know, untranslated, you know, VHS. Um, they, they obviously meant a lot to him. And um, talking about influences, he's his all-time. He Frank was said in many interviews. He made the point to me again that his all-time favorite film was a 1941 film noir classic, The Killers. Directed by Robert Siadmak, starring Burt Lancaster as another fall guy for a femme fatale play by Ava Gardner. And, and that film is very similar in the, the tone of that film is very similar to this tone. I mean, the, the Burt Lancaster is utterly, 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 utterly done in by this woman, you know? And, uh, and she is, and Ava Gardner is a real evil femme fatale in that, as they say. Uh, you know, she's working for gangsters and she's working against them and for them and he's in the middle and she's gonna um uh you know literally and figuratively screw as many people as possible just to survive you know and, and it's really 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 kind of a, a nasty edge film and you know frank was very he told me he said that's my favorite film he said i was really influenced by that and uh he he later had met and worked with robert siadmak according to jesse worked on one of his films which were made in spain and no one knows whether that's true or not, but he said that, um, you know, he got a chance to tell Seattle Mac later in his career that that was one of his, that was his all-time favorite film. And, of course, that was done in a period, you know, the 1940s film noirs, once again, they did have rules, okay? They could do certain things, but they couldn't go as far as Franco was doing them. They couldn't have a scene where Lena Romaine and a woman are nude on a couch, you know, making love and... You know, she's stabbing the woman. You couldn't have a scene like that in the 1940s, okay? You could here, and it's not X-rated, but it's, you know, 
Franklin did some really interesting things with eroticism. He went as far as he could go, but he really keeps you hooked with this film, I'll tell you that, because uh, you're hooked right up until the till the ending of the film. He, he never really lets up, and it works. Yeah, and the he's often in this movie combining sex and death and you know, of course this scene being yes. a, a definite a definite example of that and a, a, an impressive one because i'm always stunned to see a really fierce look of violent anger on lena romay's face and uh she's, yes she's very she's very good at, at expressing that but it's a rare occurrence in any of these movies and uh uh, it, it's if I had a complaint to make, it's that in that scene after she's uh, stabbed that woman, I almost want a, a shot of her dead on so that we can see her face with that expression on it because that is an animalistic, violent expression yes. on her face, and we only see it in profile while she's committing the act. Yes. And uh, I just I, yes. I I'm I'm not gonna say that I'm uh, someone who should be making suggestions to Jess Franco, but I really really do wish that we'd had a had a, an insert shot, just a shot of her face from from the front, so mm-hmm. that we could really kind of wallow in that animalistic expression on her face, because that is uh, it's a, it's a great once again, and, and under questions of identity. Here is the ruthless violence that the woman is capable of, and uh, this is yes. this is the one. This is the scene where we see it, and it's unes- It's it's just it's it's inescapable. It's amazing. Right. It's it's one of Franco's, I think, fiercest and most memorable sex and death scenes. You know, and Franco relates uh, sex and eroticism and death through his entire career. Probably the most famous example is female vampire. You know, yeah. where Lena Romay plays a, a vampire who like. You know, loves men to death. You know, um, literally, sucking literally, their, yes. Her, her, just sucking their fluids out of their body. You know what I mean? And that had never really been done before. It's been done a million times since. And but you know, uh, sex and death are, are are what that film's all about. And it was the most powerful, Franco film up to that point. And now he's doing it in a different format. He's doing it in a film noir thriller format, in a non-fantastic format about real characters. In, in real situations, you know, it's, it's not a fantasy, it's not vampires, it's real people doing this to each other, you know, and it's, it really works in this film. I, that's why, to me, this is, I think, maybe his, my favorite of his neo-noirs he, he made throughout his career, and it's very memorable, and I, I'm really glad that um, Severin has put it on this excellent uh, Blu-ray presentation well that's another thing uh, uh, all praise to severin for bringing these yes. things to 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 blu-ray because right. these these were as we mentioned before these were lost in right. in the in the bootleg circuit of trying to find old vhs tape copies of these things that were never going to look right. very good and here we have i mean this these final scenes by by the water where they're having sex there against the tree again it's I never knew it before, but it's actually beautifully shot. Yes, it is. There's time and attention lavished on shooting this sequence in a way that is actually beautiful. Yes, it and, is. Uh, it's not something that you could honestly tell in earlier <laughs> videotape versions of it. And right. having seen now all these movies that Severin is bringing out from this period and being able to reevaluate them because there's clear HD prints of these things now, it's wonderful the addition that they're making to what we can access of just franco's career man i i i, I want to thank them again and again and again and like i say this movie uh i i thought i thought a lot of 
even in a, in a bad looking version. Uh, in this version, it's one of my favorites of his works. It's it's an astonishing piece of filmmaking. It certainly is, and also one of my favorites. I got to tell you, coming to uh, Antonio Mayans as an actor from uh, some 1970s Paul Nashie films, I never thought that I would see quite as much of him as I see in this movie, but it's all to the good because he is amazing, Lena Romay is amazing, and this is a great film. Yes, he's a tremendous actor, I think, and he, in in, in these Franco films where he plays this lead role of this detective, he really... He's really excellent. He's, he's really perfectly cast here, and he just does a great job. And he's in this film in particular, I think, is just one of his his you know masterpieces of acting. You know, uh, he's, he's great. perfectly he's perfectly cast. He looks the part. He plays the part. He is the part, and you really feel for the guy. You really do as as many mistakes as he makes, <laughs> fatal fatal mistakes. As, so you really do feel for him, and it's a it's it's a very 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 powerful performance and an excellent Jess Franco film. And yes, and let's celebrate this uh, wonderful Blu-ray that has come out on. Well, uh, I think that will wrap the film up. Thank you everybody for uh, listening to us uh, walk you through Black Boots Leather Whip by Jess Franco. I am Rod Barnett. And I am Robert Monell. And hopefully we will talk to you again soon. Thank you.